Beautiful, beautiful. Joey Maloney yeah. from the Grattan Institute. How are you, sir? And thank you for coming on. I'm great. Thanks, Damon. Thanks for having me. Much appreciate the opportunity. For people who don't know who you are or are hearing your voice for the first time, could you give us a rundown of who you are and what your work, what sort of work you do within the Grattan Institute? Yeah, love to. So my job title is Senior Associate. I'm in a team called the Economic Policy Program here at the Grattan Institute. The Grattan Institute is a not-for-profit think tank. Now, so what that means is that basically... We take donations and we use that money to try to fund research into what we think are Australia's most pressing policy problems. And then we try to come up with what we think are practical solutions to solve those problems and to basically build a better Australia is what we try to do. Specifically in the economic policy program, we focus on a broad range of uh, policy areas. Housing is a big one. We also do a lot of stuff on retirement income policies, so the superannuation system and uh, the age pension, et cetera. But then we do other stuff on other parts of the tax and transfer system that we think could be improved. And then sometimes we like to zoom out and do um, a bit of analysis on the broader macroeconomic picture. So, you know, what about your interest rates or your fiscal policy and, uh, you know, your labour market? How's unemployment doing that kind of stuff? So we take a pretty broad lens Mm. and that allows us to sort of pick what we think are the most important pressing issues at the time and look for opportunities to influence public debate or influence policymakers and politicians. Uh, In terms of me specifically, I'm an economist by trade. I started my career at a government agency called the Productivity Commission, where I did a lot of microeconomic research. That's where I did a lot of stuff on the superannuation system. Then I went to the Federal Treasury. Um, I kept working on retirement income policy stuff there and Then I thought it's time to try something new. And so I left the public service and came to Grattan at the start of this year. So I've been in this role for about a year. Before we move on to how I came about you and your work, can you give us an idea of what fiscal policy means? Because I see that in the papers (laughs) a lot. I think of myself as a layman still with a lot of this. What does fiscal policy mean in the most basic term? And that's a good reminder, Damien. I should be careful with it, just that's popping okay. in jargon here and there. That's a, a habit that I'm trying to break. Well, in broad terms, fiscal policy is the decisions that the federal government makes about, one, how much they're going to tax people, and two, how much they're going to spend. So basically, you know, everyone will be familiar that uh, in the news you'll see stories about the budget deficit which is basically the gap between the amount that the government gets in tax and then the amount that it spends. Mm-hmm. So those the, the collective, the aggregate of those decisions is what economists refer to as fiscal policy. And it's a really, really important area because it's incredibly consequential. Um, it's consequential to whether you're stimulating the economy or whether you're trying to um, reduce economic activity. And... Right now, at the moment, we've got pretty loose fiscal policy, which is what economists say to refer to a situation where the government is spending a lot more than it's bringing in in tax. What that does is basically has like a stimulating effect on the economy. That's the position we're in at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there was a um, there was a I want to I'm going to link the article to other people who want to uh, check it out in the notes of the podcast. Um, it was an article in the age that I came across where you were talking about specifically some housing issues in terms of rental affordability in regional Australia. Um, mm. For people that haven't read that article, can you explain like the lay of the land in terms of housing and rental affordability in regional Australia, which I know is broad because Australia is a big mm. place with, there's a lot of country that aren't the, those cities, a lot of land, but lay out what's going on, what has caused it, what has gotten us to this point in your view and suggestions of how you might go about solving it. Yeah, happy to. So I think the the first thing I'll say is like we were sort of inspired to write that piece on the back of, um, you know, there, were, there was an increasing frequency of news reports about, you know, poorer, more vulnerable people in regional areas being squeezed basically out of the housing market. And we were kind of looking at it and it's like, for a long, long time, the debate about housing affordability in Australia 
it kind of keeps centering on the capital cities. And in particular, it keeps centering on Sydney and Melbourne. When we, you know, the, the most common news story about housing affordability is far and away about Sydney house prices and then Melbourne house prices in a close second. You'd be forgiven if the, if, you know, a layperson would be forgiven if they picked up the impression that the crisis of housing affordability in Australia was a problem purely uh, was a problem purely isolated to cities and that people in regional areas were actually doing fine. Mm. We were looking at the situation where that is so far from true anymore that there are regional areas where housing costs are rising quicker than they are in cities at the moment. Mm. So, you know, we were looking at um, vacancy rates in particular, so the the amount of rental properties that are free at any one time for anyone who needs a property to live, what share of the rental stock is available for them to move into. In most regional areas, it's sitting below 1%. Mm. To put that in perspective, the benchmark of like a healthy rental market where people should be able to find a property if they need one is 3%. Mm. There, are, there are regional areas where it's as low as 0.2%, 0.3%. What that means is that well, with more and more people fighting over fewer and fewer properties, the rents that landlords are asking for those properties is going through the roof. So across regional areas, it's asking rents. So that those rents that landlords are advertising up about 12.5%. But there's a wide distribution underneath that. You've got some really popular regional areas like the, the I'll get into this a bit more later, but the areas yeah. where a lot of the city dwellers are interested in moving to, we're seeing like 30%, 40%. What this means is that when this happens, and it happens quickly, if you're a poor person and you had a rental and the contract's up and the landlord says, if you want another lease, if the rent's going to be 10 to 15% higher and you can't afford that and someone outbids you, and there's more people ending up in caravan parks, in tents, having to move in with relatives, living in their cars. So mm. it's always the most vulnerable to get squeezed in this situation. So onto the why. Basically, it all comes back to COVID. The, the COVID caused this huge dislocation in our housing market. There was sort of a couple of immediate effects of it that pulled in different directions. So one effect was we shut the borders. Australia has a relatively high rate of overseas migration relative to other countries, which means that we've got a large number of people moving here every year looking for a place to live. Place to live. Once you like cut that off, which we did, then that should, in theory, loosen up the housing market a bit, which was an initial effect. But it was offset by this other effect, with people being locked down and being forced to work from home, there was like a, what I've heard someone else describe as, describe as really neatly, a race for space. So everyone wanted a bit more space to themselves. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the data, you see big, like share houses dissolved and people mm-hmm. moved in either to their own flat or with a partner. Some people moved back in with their parents, but the net effect was that the average household size, so the, the typical number of people living in a given house fell. So that means that like, even though there's no new people coming to the country, the amount of people we have want more houses in total yeah. to satisfy their preferences. Now, a related effect with working from home was that there was uh, a change in preferences in where people wanted to live. This is where the regional factor really comes in. So a lot of city people who had maybe city office jobs and then after maybe six to 12 months of work from home, kind of realised, hey, I can do my job remotely absolutely fine. I don't need to live close to this city. I don't think my employer is going to make me come back into the office every day anymore. I can move to down the coast mm. to Torquay or maybe if New South Wales up to Coffs Harbour, something like that. Mm. So that that's, the big, that's a big factor in regional areas. And it loops back to what I said before about the surging in rents is most prominent in those really popular areas, particularly coastal areas, where mm-hmm. bougie city folk are looking and think, hey, I can have a nice, peaceful, tranquil life in a nice country area. I can mm-hmm. keep my city job. And at the end of the day, once that filters through, it's the poorer people in the regional areas that are going to be squeezed out. 
And the last factor I want to mention here is that with borders reopening now, so migration's coming back. So all of this is happening now. We've got a lot of people who want more space, a lot of people who are happy to leave the city and move to the regions. And this is all happening as we've opened the doors to migration and more, and more we've got that flow of people coming back into the country. All these things are coming together, basically represent a big increase in the demand for housing, but all, a, a big increase in the demand for housing in particular regional areas. All the while, the supply of housing is constrained, mm-hmm. right? What can we do? Why is housing supply constrained? Like one is it takes time to build a house, right? You can't, housing supply can never respond as quickly as we'd like to housing demand. Mm. Two, there's these other constraints on housing supply. One is planning systems um, make it hard for people to build, you know, a, a lot of housing quickly in desirable areas. Another one is there's all these supply chain disruptions for all the construction inputs. So I saw a stat from the Housing Industry Association that was like, Typically, from go to woe, it can take about eight months to build a house. That's blown out past 12 months now yeah. because builders are having trouble sourcing all the materials that they need to build a house. And that's why you're seeing like the, the price of you know timber on the international market is shot through the roof. Mm. The price for a lot of steel products has gone up as well. So basically, that's the upshot of the story is you've got these confluence of factors from COVID that have led to this surge of demand for houses, the demand for space, and the demand of particularly regional areas, and you've got a constrained supply that can't respond quickly enough. There's a um, a mayor I interviewed from Yurubadala Council Shire. It's down on the south coast of New South Wales, and he was in the ABC a, a, a few months back for writing letters to people that own housing in the area that lived in Canberra or Sydney to just say they weren't using them except for how, uh, for holiday homes and was asking, could you guys please put this back on the rental market? We know you'll be copping a loss if you're airbnb it, but we just don't have the housing. Hmm. So it's something I've wondered too about this, and I have no, I don't know any data that would back this. I've not looked into it. Um, I originally am from Newcastle in New South Wales, and the amount of people moving from Sydney to Newcastle during COVID pushed the prices up to a crazy degree in terms of value to buy, not the, the rentals. I had a theory that likely the average income or median income in some of these regional areas is much lower than the capital city people close by. So, and if they're in, if they're in jobs that they can do from home, I'm assuming it's white collar industry jobs. So they're usually earning a higher income anyway. They had the money to basically push the prices up and could still afford that, that uptick in prices when they're buying. And a lot of investors sold their investment properties in the last two years. So they were selling at a high profit, which means there's less rentals total on the market as well. Yeah. Now, you, you, you've, hit the, you've got a really good point here that people... Work from home is moving from the city to popular regional areas. They don't just represent an extra household demanding a property in the regional areas. They also represent people with a higher willingness to pay moving. So there's kind of the double whammy price effect there that you've um, that you've hit really well. You also mentioned uh, Airbnb and holiday homes. This is something we canvassed in our article in The Age that you mentioned at the outset, that it's really, really it's hard to get good data on this. It's hard mm. to understand the, the actual magnitude of the effect of the popularity of short stays in desirable regional areas. It's not zero, but I don't think it's the main game. Mm. Um, and I think... Well, you've always got to keep in mind that short stays bring the availability of short stay rentals bring other benefits to communities as well. Yeah. So I grew up in a in a relatively popular tourist spot in regional Victoria a town called Dalesford. And um, you know, I've got I know people in Dalesford who work in the tourism industry. Maybe they, you know, I, I, a friend of mine's dad runs a catering company. He's sort of got this problem where he has trouble finding a stable workforce of young people to work for his catering business. 
because it's very expensive for young people to rent houses in Dalesford. So they end up leaving Dalesford, moving somewhere cheaper or something like that. Now, that's difficult for him. But on the flip side, the fact that a lot of Dalesford houses are on Airbnb rather than being leased on the long-term market means that a lot of people can come to town and undertake a lot of tourist activity and then buy services off such companies as a catering company. Mm. So it's like the tourism is good for his business, but it has this sort of flow-on effect where it yeah. kind of makes it hard for people on lower incomes to rent in the town. But we did canvas the idea in our article of if the problem is that acute right now that, you know, you're seeing increasing numbers of, you can't ignore the increasing number of reports of people, poor, vulnerable people who just literally can't find somewhere to live. And even if like the amount of Airbnbs isn't particularly big compared to the rest, the actual broader housing stock, there's still an argument to say you can help address this acute crisis to some degree by trying to turn some of the short stays into long stays. The exact mechanism by which you do that, not entirely sure, could be like a slightly higher rate of land tax on a property that's least short stay rather than long term. Just something to try to, at the margin, incentivize landlords to provide mm. long-term stays. But it's something you want to proceed with caution because you don't want to basically remove a huge chunk of tourist accommodation from a particular area because mm-hmm. then you're going to have, yeah, it's going to have knock-on effects because there's probably a lot of people in that town employed via the tourism yeah. industry. So there's a trade-off there that needs to be carefully managed. Plus, like, I talk to a lot of people who are from, like, the the property investor, not lobby group, but, like, the people that are the associations involved in that, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't be, they would kick up a shitstorm <laughs> if they like they complain a lot yeah. and some of it's warranted some of their complaints i completely understand where they're coming from uh some mm. of them are a bit some of them are a bit dramatic but i can imagine that like because government doesn't really put a ton of money into social housing uh or government housing compared to maybe the the, the rates that they used to it's just over, I think, ninety mm. percent of rental stock in the country is provided by private investment. Mm. So, like, not random people, you know. If you annoy them, they can just maybe they'll sell. Maybe they'll mm. just make Airbnb more expensive on their on their house, and that'll offset the land rate change. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. there's it's got to be a balance struck where like if landlords always get the shit end of the stick when it comes to figuring out how to fix housing issues, they'll just sell and find another way to invest. And maybe that's not a mm. terrible idea because I, I don't know how I feel about housing. It's not it's not legally regulated as a commodity, but it's basically a commodity like yeah. at this point, you know? You've hit a couple of threads there that I'd love to pull on a bit. On the, I mean, I'm not in the business of landlord bashing. I just, I don't think it's constructive to the debate. I think there is genuine questions to ask about the balance of power between landlords 100%, and renters. And 100%. I'm not, I'm not in the business of um, throwing gifts at landlords or anything like that. But I'm also not in the business of demonising them as, as, as some others in the debate are. Uh, there's always going to be a role. For private landlords and private rent in the private rental market that's the nature of housing the, the just the, the policy question is just how do we get the balance right exactly. between um making sure we have a healthy uh, rental stock versus making sure that renters get a good deal mm. in terms of investors selling this is an interesting question sometimes i see sort of broad threats of our oh, investors if you do X, Y, Z, if you change the land tax or if you change the tenancy laws, I'm I'm threatening to sell my property and that'll be one less property on the private rental market. What that misses is like, well, the, the house doesn't just disappear, right? So someone's going to buy that house off them. It's either going to be another investor who's going to lease it again, in which case the net effect on the rental stock is just zero. Yeah, no change. Yeah. Or... Or they're going to sell it to a first home buyer. Now, most of the time, that first home buyer is going to come from the rental stock. 
So they'll free up some another property in the rental stock. Again, the net effect is zero. Where that there is a nuance to this though, that I think is important. That one is uh, a first home buyer won't necessarily come from the rental stock. They might be living with their parents and trying to save a deposit, which in that case, that actually represents like a new household formation. And that does, the net effect of that is actually a negative one reduction in the rental mm. stock. But there's also a distributional question. So if you're an investor and you're saying, I've had enough of this, the rules, the rule changes are giving me the shits. I need to um, sell this property. You sell it to a first home buyer. They come from a rental. Chances are that first home buyer, if they've got enough money to buy that house, then they're not poor. The person who might have been living in the property that you, before you sold it, so the renter, they might have been poorer. So this is distributional question of you sell the property, that person's got to find somewhere near new to live, right? That's disruptive. It could be yeah. expensive if the front of the rental market is more expensive than the rents that they're currently paying. And then the person who's bought the property is probably uh, is is going to be much well off, uh, more well off than the person who's lost the property. So there's distributional questions there. So I don't think as much. I think the threat of selling is overblown, but I don't think that we can treat it as a non-issue, like a total empty threat. Because do you mean you think the net effect of the the threat of landlords selling, sometimes it's almost, it feels sometimes like the boy who cried wolf when I read it in the news. But do you think the net effect of if a lot of them did sell, that would be bad? But like, that's not the effect of it. If it all happens, isn't overblown. Like it would be a negative effect, but you're just not sure whether it's actually um, authentically a threat is that sort of do you know what i mean we can edit uh, this out i don't want you to get political like i want it, I, I don't want you to get in trouble i'm just sort of trying to understand no, that's all right. no no we get a, we get a pretty uh long rope to to speak openly about stuff so no stress there but the i suppose what i'm saying is i don't i don't think it's an empty threat like i think landlords do act on it and we've seen like like you've mentioned before there has been a bit of an investor seller right yeah so this stuff does have an effect. Um, it's not an empty threat. I suppose it's not as it's not as strong a threat, maybe as I think some landlords think it is. Yeah. Okay. When I think when I see I see some landlords present the threat as if I am reducing the rental stock by one, but they're not thinking about the 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 sort of the general market dynamics that would flow on after that sale. Mm. But then on the other extreme, some people say oh, the threat is entirely meaningless because they'll just sell the property to either another investor or a first-home buyer. But like I mentioned, there's those couple of nuances there that mean that actually like the threat, if broad-scale investor sell-offs can have a detrimental impact on the rental market, mm. particularly if we're worried about the, the uh, vulnerable renters in particular. They're the mm. ones who can be disrupted a lot by, by investor sell-offs. Yeah. That actually, that's a good segue to the other point I wanted to talk about that you mentioned before, social housing. So government provided public housing. You were right when you said governments have uh, kind of abdicated a bit of responsibility. In they've sold place. off a ton of it. They don't want the problem they of have, it anymore. <laughs> they, and they've, they've stopped building it. And like yep. as a share of the total housing stock, it's fallen. So like... The number of social housing units has been relatively flat, but that's as population's grown like 30% over the last two decades and we're not keeping up with the housing. Where that is like a massive, where the rubber really hits the road with that problem is like, you know, we're talking before about imagine you're a low-income renter in a private rental. Your contract's up. The rent, the landlord's looking at the market and being like, all right, I can ask for 20% more this time. You can't afford that. You've got nowhere to go. Mm. In a previous world, you'd go to the government and you say, hey, like, I need a public, I need a unit of public housing, otherwise I'm going to be homeless, right? And then the government says, okay, we'll put you on the waiting list, hopefully not too long. Now you go and they're like, okay, we'll put you on the waiting list. It'll be years and years and years. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you'll get somewhere that's probably pretty run down and hasn't been well maintained. So the neglect of our public housing stock is kind of a big compounding factor 
if we think about the tightness in the rental market, particularly in like regional pockets where people might not be able to in the position to move. So like if you're in a pocket, if you're in like a regional town, you got a lot of family there, your kids are in school there, whatever else, you got nowhere to go. There's no public housing. That's how that's when people end up in like caravan parks, right? That's how that happens. When there's the government is not playing backstop the way it should, basically. Mm. There's another aspect of this I'll have to like talk to you about that's more on from the lending side of things. I don't know if you know much about like APRA and like yeah, the lending. Yeah. yeah. So like that's another mm. thing that like from the people keep in mind it's from people within lending space and investment space. So is are they have they got some bias in what they're saying? Maybe. But I hear it enough from people that the argument too of like since 2016, 2017, APRA had regulations put in place to limit the amount of investor lending, which tends to be in their classification, higher risk. And there's an argument that it's not. There's an argument for it being higher risk. So that's let's leave that in the wash, you know. But um mm. If you're the argument from a lot of investing people in the space is like, if you've been limiting the amount of investor lending among all the uh, authorized deposit taking institutions, which isn't all banks, but a lot of them or, or lenders, um, that's going to lead to a reduction in rental stock over time because you're not letting investors invest at the same levels. And should you limit it? Should you not? I don't know the answer, but I know that's also maybe a piece. Uh, that could maybe if lending was, I don't really know if I want lending to be loosened because mm. the idea of that and the percent, the potential consequences of that don't sound great just because of what history tells us about that. But I don't know if it should be ignored either. That's mm. no, a great question. So, you know, if we think about APRA's role as a, their, what's called a prudential regulator, their role is to look at like the systemic risk in a financial market. Mm-hmm. So when they when they made this decision to they put a speed limit on interest only loans in particular. What they're looking at is they're looking at the housing market, which you got to remember. In even the housing market's been going down lately, but in the period you mentioned, it was like absolutely going gangbusters. So what they obviously made the assessment that there was a build up of systemic risk in the financial system which basically means that there was a risk that there was credit being extended to people who may not be able to service it. And we all know what happens when you kind of get cascading defaults on loans, that basically there's this contagion effect and then you get a financial crisis, which is basically, which is what happened in the US during the GFC. So APRA's decision to use what they call a macro prudential tool, which is basically just rules about who banks can lend to, how much they can lend and on what terms they can lend were made in their assessment of a build-up of systemic risk. So this hinges on, like, the question of, well, how sound was that assessment? Was it the right, like, because they're trading off, right? Like, there is downsides to restricting credit, which may be that you get less investment in rental housing. Well, how much is that traded off against the systemic risk? To answer that question, you really need to, like, understand APRA's assessment of the systemic risk. Mm. That... I don't know, but what I would say is that I feel like I've seen enough evidence throughout history of what happens when you don't take a build-up of systemic risk in financial markets seriously to kind of at least give APRA the benefit of the doubt that the decision they made might have been, even though like it's one of those things where it's like it's kind of a thankless decision because it's if, if it was the right decision, we'll never know. Because you'll only know if like, if that decision avoided what might have been potentially like a financial crisis. We'll never know. So APRA never gets any thanks for that decision because mm. we never yeah. actually, like it's it's the decision that just prevented something bad happening. We'll never actually know if that bad thing was going to happen. Or yeah. Not. Yeah. Well, um, I feel the same way. I, I have very conflicting feelings about like Wayne Byers, the APRA guy that did all of that because he's just getting out of the job now, I think. Same with Philip Lowe where like, no matter what you do, the media is going to tarnish you. They're not really nice to those guys. No matter what you do in those jobs, you're not going to win, I guess. So going off of uh, what we were just talking about with, you know, all these different factors that uh, have contributed to where we are with the regional 
rental affordability and lack of supply in the regional areas of Australia, what other options could there be specifically with the low income segment? You talked about rental assistance in the uh, the newspaper article. And I wondered if you mm. could explain what, what that actually is as a concept, how it serves Australians now and how it could be further implemented to help more people. I'd love to. So this is something that um, me and my boss here at Grant are very passionate about. We think it's probably, it's up there in the most impactful policy decisions that could be made and should be made. So basically, there's an income support supplement that uh, people can get called Commonwealth Rent Assistance. So if you're a recipient of any income support payment from Centrelink and you live in the private rental market, you can get a supplement to your payment called Commonwealth Rent Assistance that has a complicated structure that I won't get into too much, but basically uh, it's they'll refund you a share of your rent up to a maximum amount. Now, it really works, right? Because it's basically like if you're a poor, poor person who's struggling with housing costs, here is money that directly, directly helps you with that. So it's just targeting the problem very cleanly. And it, it works, right? So... Analysis done by the Productivity Commission government agency has showed that if you look at people who receive Commonwealth rental assistance and you try to estimate what percentage of them would be in housing stress with it and without it, it goes from 72 to 46%. So it has a, it has a material effect on housing stress. Like it, it works, right? Its job is to reduce housing stress and it does that. The problem with it is, is that the rate of it goes up every year with the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, or basically the overall rate of inflation. Now, the reason that's a problem is rents have gone up quicker than overall mm. inflation over the last 20 years. But in particular, the rents paid by low-income people, who are the people who actually receive Commonwealth rental assistance, has gone up even quicker again. So... Mm. If you think about it, it's like Commonwealth rental assistance, it's like real value to the people who receive it in terms of its ability to relieve housing stress has diminished over the last 20 years because of the structure of the uh, the way the payment increases every year. So on our estimate, we reckon that we need to raise the rate of Commonwealth rental assistance by about 40%. And that'll make up for the real value that it's lost over the last 20 years. Then you need to make put in place a mechanism whereby every year, rather than going up automatically with inflation, it goes up automatically with the rents that low-income people who actually get Commonwealth rental assistance actually pay. And that'll protect its real value over time. So basically, like this is kind of it's the short-term solution right? Like this doesn't deal with the crux of the problem, which is like not enough houses. <laughs> but in the short term, it's this is something that is going to help low-income renters in the private rental market at least stay above water. And it's it's not just about, you know, this isn't necessarily the difference between being homeless or not homeless, right? But what it does do is it, it doesn't squeeze your household as much. So even if like, yeah, we we're talking before about a private renter, who gets squeezed out of the property. Well, imagine a private renter who deals with the rent increase, like makes it work. But what that means is that they got less money left to put food on the table and whatever else, you know, kids' school uniforms, whatever, the other necessities of life. This rental assistance basically just like provides an extra buffer, a bit more breathing room there, just gives them a bit more liquidity to get through day-to-day -day life. So the last thing I say on Commonwealth rental assistance is, the other thing we floated in our article is that some people worry that this payment ends up just leading to higher rents. That if yeah. you give people money to spend on rent, then landlords are just going to factor that into the yeah, amount yeah. that they ask. We don't think that's a big deal because the money's not tied to rent. It's extra payment that's made to people who are paying rent, but they don't have to spend it on rent. So like if the subsidy, if the money was just this is money that you have to spend on rent, then you would expect landlords to be like, oh, I'm going to factor that into my price. But it's untied. So there might be some small effect, but it's probably going to be very, very small. And the other thing is, 
only a small fraction of people in the private rental market actually receive this payment. So to have a broad-based effect on rents isn't really plausible given mm. you're only talking about a small subset of renters. Mm. I guess like the one, the only thing I would then like, based on what you're saying, if more people have to get on that, what's the, what's the cap on income to qualify for the rental assistance? So this is where it's got a bit of a slippery structure in there. Okay, it doesn't okay. have like a its own means test. Right. What it is, is you're eligible to get Commonwealth rent assistance if you receive any other Centrelink payment. So if you're on Newstart, if you're on an age pension, uh, if you get like the uh, disability support pension, then you're eligible. It doesn't have its own means test. So it's basically like the only thing that can increase the number of people getting CRA is increases in the number of people on income support more generally, mm. which is like the more people who are unemployed, which we're not seeing at the moment because unemployment's really low, or more people um, on the age pension which we're not seeing because even though there's more people, there's more older people now because the population is aging, we're also seeing more and more people retire with like uh, built up super balances, which means that they get means tested off the age pension. So basically, well, the number of welfare recipients is kind of low and probably in no danger of skyrocketing anytime soon. Mm. Yeah, okay. Because, yeah, that's one, th- just speaking on maybe the the ageing population part of it as a bit of a tangent, but mm. that's something that really interests me that maybe we haven't been replacing our population at a quick enough rate. So then, like, we haven't been having as many kids. Like, if you think, of, like, my dad is one of five kids. My mum was mm. one of four kids. And most of my cousins are from one or two two-child families. So, like, mm. the the general uh i guess trend is that people are having less kids later in life and if that's ongoing we'll end up having a bunch more old people who aren't contributing much to the economy anymore and maybe some of them will end up relying on the pension more depending on how quickly their super runs out cuz i don't know what the average super bit balance is anymore but will some of these things with like low rental income assistance will some of these things be more um, prominent as we have less people contributing to the economy and more people taking, not taking in a bad way, but mm. you know what I mean? No, I know what you mean. Um, I'll just say I love this tangent. This is actually like historically been my main area of research in retirement income policy right. and the aging population. Um, you're exactly right. The, the population is aging. Um there's sort of like there's the there's the baby boomer factor where like that generation was huge and they're all entering retirement now. So this is kind of big lump of people entering retirement. But you're right, the long-term trend is uh falling birth rates. So basically, like if it wasn't for overseas migration, the Australian population would probably be going backwards, right? But it's going forwards at quite a clip because we bring in a lot of young migrants. What migration does is it slows down the effect of the aging population. So by keep by bringing in more and more young skilled migrants, like we do, we're basically like artificially inflating the amount of working age people in the population relative to mm. what would happen if we didn't have migrants coming in. So that kind of that slows down the worst of the effects of the aging population. Um, I shouldn't say worst. I don't want to. More people living longer is fundamentally a good news story, right? Like this is a good, this is something to be celebrated. But you're an economist. History. I know what you're talking yeah, about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, it is. It's something to be celebrated. For most of human history, people didn't live past the age of thirty, and here we are yeah, yeah. until we're like 80, 90 years old. It's great. Yeah, it's a yeah. great news story. But yeah, you're right. From the policy, there is the policy question about how we deal with that, right? What the all the projections that. Um, have been done and I did a lot of this stuff when I used to work at the federal treasury is basically that the super system is broadly doing its job and is expected to do its job which is to say that as more and more people spend their whole working life making uh, contributions to super higher than the previous generation they're going to retire with like semi-decent super balances most Mm. people will still draw a little bit of pension. So the way the pension structure is, you know, if you've got below this amount of assets, you get the full rate. 
if you've got above this but below this, then you're on this like taper rate where you can get like what's called a part pension. So right now, like most pensioners, full pensioners. Over time, there's going to be fewer full pensioners, more part pensioners, but fewer pensioners overall. And when you project the cost to the government of the age pension as a share of the economy, which is the right way to think about like the long-term sustainability of government spending, mm -hmm. it's actually going to fall because of the effect of like basically what super is, is you're just forcing people to provide for themselves. Yeah. You're compelling people to save for their own retirements. And over time, that, that effect is going to basically see the pressure on the government fall. Now, this is like, there is it's a balancing act here, right? Like, not super can't, you can't guarantee everyone an adequate retirement with super because it's just a direct function of wages and some people just won't earn enough money during their working life to fund their own retirement. So you're always going to need that safety net there. But there is a broad story there that the, the general idea of compulsory superannuation is working to offset the long-term dangers of an aging population in terms of like the sustainability of government spending. And when it, this, the, you really see this when you look internationally, like other governments who haven't maybe set themselves up as well as we have, they're, they're looking ahead at projections where, you know, the cost of their pensions is going to blow out. Where, and they're looking at our projections where the cost of our pensions is actually like really sustainable and they're probably pretty envious so i'd say in broad in broad strokes to answer your question um the australian retirement income system is pretty well set up to deal with an aging population mm. last thing on this and then i got a question for us to get out on i guess another segment of that that you could talk about or that i think about with like housing um a stat that was in the fin review way earlier in the year was talking about it was an opinion piece i can't remember who wrote it but just sort of talking about how a big predictor of financial stress in retirement was whether you owned your home or not mm -hmm. because even if you've got a pretty good super balance on when you retire that you can draw from until you pass out uh, pass out pass away um rent is like like housing costs are like usually the highest proportion of your or portion of your weekly expenses right so your there might be an argument that your super will last you way longer if you own your home or, or whether your you own your home mm. or not and i wonder like i worry about this so i just got a i just got my first house and it was through one of the government schemes and i've been reading and learning from a few different people in the space who have an idea that like obviously it's great for more people to get into home ownership like that's net positive, but because of how the system works with the schemes and the funding grants or the elimination of lenders mortgage insurance, if you have a small deposit means you've got more money to play with to bid on a place ultimately pushes up that middle mm. part of the market. So it's a lot harder for everyone. It's you're not pulling the ladder up behind you but you're raising it high enough that someone might need a boost to jump up to it. Do you get what I'm saying? Like it, yeah, it's, it, yeah, it'll yeah. get progressive. I, I worry that I like, I'm a product of this. I've benefited, benefited from that scheme, but I'm very cognizant of the fact that it is going to become progressively harder and harder because the prices are getting pushed up and inflated by government intervention coming from a good place. Yeah. No, you, everything you said is pretty spot on. So you're right that basically the single biggest predictor of whether someone is struggling with living costs in retirement is whether they own their own home or not. And that's because historically, like our retirement income policy settings assume home ownership. Yeah. And you see this in the age pension, the way the age pension assets test is done, that the owner-occupied housing is essentially excluded from the test. So you can have like, imagine two people, right? They've both got a net worth of half a million bucks. One of them has that entire net worth in their property. They've paid off their mortgage. They get a full age pension. The other one has half a million bucks in, say, the share market, something like that. They're going to get a lower pension because that's factored into the age pension assets test. So basically, they're, they're, they're as rich as each other. They're as wealthy as each other. But the one who owns their home 
uh, gets a gets a better ride in the mm-hmm. in the age pension system. So um, what what we think needs to happen is we need to do some careful thinking about what happens long term as we have more and more people entering retirement as renters. And this gets to the other point that we're talking about, which is falling rates of home ownership, which we've seen and I reckon we're going to continue to see. We're seeing it like for younger age groups, poorer age groups, even now middle-class age groups, rates of home ownership are falling. So basically, what are we going to do when more and more people enter retirement as renters and you've got a set of policy settings to kind of assume that everyone is owning their own home, right? Assuming that people have paid off their mortgages and their only housing costs in retirement are like rates and insurance. That's basically Mm. it. What are we going to do when we've got people in retirement who are like, actually, I need to pay my rent throughout my whole retirement. So there's kind of like this circles back. Commonwealth rental assistance will address the worst of this because that age pensioners in the private rental market get this payment too. So that would help alleviate those in poverty. We also think that like the, we need to get the age pension means test on a more fair level playing field, which means that we need to have people tested on the wealth that they have in their property as well. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to force people to move out of their property, but it does mean that people should, we, we want a world in which people try to turn some of that equity because it's going to be yeah. huge, right? Cause think about, we're going to have people retiring with like over a million dollars in equity in their house that they're not going to touch and they're just going to pass on to the next generation. So, you know, right now the government's got a scheme where um, retirees can basically borrow against that equity as an extra income stream in retirement. And then the government recoups that uh, out of the estate. And like, that's a great, that's actually like a good mechanism, right? Like I know people have intuitive, sometimes sometimes people intuitively find it objectionable that you should, you know, the home is the home, it's the family home. But it's like, it's a lot of equity and like, the alternative is basically like you ask for the government to plug your income at the expense of like people who might need that income more because they don't even have that potential equity yeah. to draw on. So that's a big one that needs to happen. And then the other the other thing I think is important is to think carefully about security and tenure for renters as well. So like what can we do to set up a rental market where there is like better long-term tenure available for people? You know, a lot of the the rental market sort of historically has been the the modal renter is uh, a young person who's pretty mobile, right? What 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 would a rental market? Well, what would rental regulation look like for a market where we want actually people to feel like they can make their house a home for the long term? Because that might look a bit different, right? But anyway, there's a whole bucket of ideas there that I want yeah, to yeah. run out Yeah, of no, that's all right. I was going to say, I'll, I'll, I would love to have you on in person again or over Zoom mm. at some point in the future because I've, I've got a list of questions from just awesome. this. Before we get out of here, if you could go back to the 18-year-old Joey or the 25-year-old Joey to give that guy advice, assuming he would listen to you, what would it be and why? I love this question. I'm gonna I'm gonna take 18 just because I reckon it'll make for a more interesting answer than 25. Because I think it was from 18 to 25 that I made my biggest realizations. Mm. And I think, and this is gonna sound a little um, self-flagellating, but I'd love to tell my 18 year old self that don't assume things just work out, mate. You know, like, I think back when I was 18, I think I had this naive idea in my head that it was like. Um, I'll be fine, you know, like, uh, I'll find out, I'll find what I want to do. I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll get a good job. I'll be happy. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It was sort of like from ages 18 to 25 was when I started realizing like, no, actually things don't just work. You need to work. You need to work to figure out one, what your passion is. And then you have to work hard to excel in that passion or to do or to like do something with that passion. Mm-hmm. I think I was like, I think I spent a bit of my time when I was 18, you know, into my early adulthood, kind of just waiting for life to present itself, waiting for life to say, Joey, this is what you should be doing. And then I sort of like snapped into gear and was like, 
actually, I need to like make life happen for me. So basically, in, to sum up, I'd say to my 18-year-old self, wait, snap out of it, you know, get off your ass and do some work. I, I only found out recently that my, uh, a guy's brain stops developing at 25. So I turned, <laughs> I turned, I turned 26 in February. And this yeah. year for me has been a year where I've had a lot of strides, both personally, financially, and like just in life, I just feel like I've got a better handle of things and a bit more confidence in being able to deal with bullshit. But like from 18 to now, it was always a bit like, have I figured this out? Have I? Do you know what I mean? So it's an interesting time. I know 100% what you mean, man. And I reckon that like age 25 sort of critical point for young men, I reckon like there's really something to that. Because I was the same as you. Like I I didn't I don't feel like I started to like snap into gear and um carve out a you know a proper medium term path, medium long term path for myself until I hit 25. And then once I sort of actually started snapping into gear, like things started to work out well for me, you know, like I I changed uni degrees, uh, started studying a lot harder, started getting good marks, started getting opportunities like internships and stuff, got into the honours program at uni and then got a good grad job out of that. And then since then, I kind of looked back and I was like, yeah, it was kind of, it was that sort of, there was something that happened to me when I was at age 24, 25, where I kind of just snapped into gear and I realised I was capable of more than I was doing, mm-hmm. you know? Um so yeah, I reckon, yeah, something about the male brain. I don't know, we're still we're still kids until we're in our mid twenties. Yeah, I think that girls' brains develop earlier than ours, which makes more sense. Yeah. <laughs> yep, hundred percent. Yeah. Listen, mate, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for that. <laughs> awesome. No, Cheers, thanks for having me, Damon. That was heaps of fun, and I, I look forward to coming on again. All the best.